Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us this week on Order Up, the podcast from the National Restaurant Association. I'm Carly McBride, Marketing Program Manager and your host for this week. I'm excited to welcome today's guests, Marari Simeon, VP of Global Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at PepsiCo, and also Alicia Flores, CEO of L&L Hawaiian Barbecue. PepsiCo is a longtime partner of the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation and champion for DEI. Fifteen years ago, PepsiCo partnered with the National Restaurant Association and Educational Foundation to establish the Faces of Diversity Award. This award celebrates diversity and inclusion and honors individuals who have achieved great success in their lives and in business. For that last 14 years, there have been three winners each year and 2,500 in scholarships awarded to a student in the name of each winner. This year, we are celebrating the spirit of the Faces of Diversity Award with our Journeys That Inspire campaign presented by PepsiCo. Today, we have two special guests that showcase the spirit of the Faces of Diversity and are excited to share their journeys. With us is Marari Simeon, VP of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at PepsiCo, and also Alicia Flores, CEO of L&L Hawaiian Barbecue. Alicia and Marari, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. I'm excited to learn more about your stories, so let's get started. Marari, can you share a little background on your role at PepsiCo and how supporting a program such as the Faces of Diversity Award connects back to the mission and values of PepsiCo? Hello, and thank you for having me. And it's an honor to share this platform with Alicia. So great to be here. I've been with PepsiCo for 17 years, most of it as an HR executive and the past three years as a DEI. And I can tell you from a PepsiCo perspective, diversity has something that's been part of the DNA of PepsiCo since I started 17 years ago and you know, for the past 40 years. For PepsiCo, it is an honor to partner with the National Restaurant Association Educational Foundation. You know, one of the things about PepsiCo is that embracing and celebrating diversity of leadership has long been part of our company's history. Now, while I've been with them for 17 years, it's probably 40 years. Uh, it's been a part of our history. And representing communities in which we do business in has never been more important, as you know. We know that communities thrive with leadership from within the communities. The Faces of Diversity Award recipients over the past 15 years now are those with the most committed to seeing positive impact, not only in their personal businesses, but across the communities they serve. And it's just been such a proud moment for us to be part of this. Now, recognizing the award recipients allows the industry to honor their incredible journeys as they all achieve success against all ads. The other thing it does is these journeys are role models to other individuals. They bring hope to those that this is now their dream. So it goes beyond just recognizing them, but it's really bringing hope to the rest of the community, if you want to look at it that way. Providing scholarships to aspiring ProStar students in their name also enables our next generation of leaders to achieve their dreams through education. Now, we anticipate great things from these students as many are attending college as a first generation 
um, similar to myself. I was a first generation um, college student and working to provide for their families and making a difference in their lives and also every single life they touch. And Elisa's father was the 2008 recipient and it's an honor to be here with her, with you today, Alicia, and to hear how the legacy of your leadership continues. We're just so glad to have been just a small part of that recognition and that journey. Thank you for that. Shifting over to Alicia, can you tell us a little bit about L&L Hawaiian Barbecue? And as I understand, your father has close ties to the Faces of Diversity Award, was a previous winner. So can you share more on his connection and how your journey to your career began? Yeah, aloha. Super excited to be here today. So L&L Hawaiian Barbecue was started by my dad and his business partner, Johnson Cam, over 40 years ago. And Marari, thank you so much for recognizing, you know, he was a 2008 Faces of Diversity Award winner. And I remember attending the event in Chicago with my family and being so proud that there was recognition of all the hard work that he had done. Um, and especially for a diverse person, you know, knowing his story. So my dad is one of seven in his family, grew up very, very poor um, in Hong Kong and the Philippines. Both my grandparents had you know, less than a sixth grade education. My mom also was in an orphanage in Hong Kong, adopted by a family in the United States. Very lucky to be here in America. And, you know, starting LNL has been an American dream for my family come true. And when I think back to their roots and coming from such tough situations to what they have been able to accomplish, it's just so amazing to me. And I'm so grateful for. Uh, l and in the restaurant industry as being the vehicle for them to achieve their dreams. And I, and I love that Pepsi and the National Restaurant Association Education Fund recognize their achievements. That's beautiful and inspiring to hear. Thank you for sharing. Um, and Alicia, for our listeners who may not be familiar with l and can you paint me a picture of your restaurant concept? What do you serve? What is it all about? Yeah, so the best way to learn about us is to come to Hawaii. But short of that, uh, you know, we specialize in the plate lunch or essentially the state food of Hawaii. You know, that dates back to the 1880s when immigrant workers in Hawaii plantation fields brought rice and other leftovers for lunch. The lunches would be shared, resulting in a mix of home recipes from different cultures, including Japan, China, the Philippines, Korea, and even New England. This blend of cuisines formed the local food style that has become the hallmark of Hawaii. Um, and at l we're proud to serve this comfort food staple featuring rice, macaroni salad, and a cooked-to-order entree. So it's a pretty unique style of food, but we're really excited that it represents Hawaii and a mix of diverse cultures. That sounds delicious. I need to come to Hawaii. <laughs> so how many locations do you have, and where can we find your restaurants? Are they all in Hawaii or are they elsewhere? Yeah, we have 210 locations. Of course, we were founded in Hawaii. We're still headquartered here. Uh, but most of our locations now are on the mainland. We're in 14 different states, a good presence on the, the West Coast, as well as states on the East Coast, such as Virginia, Florida, North Carolina. So we're looking to continue to expand across the United States and bring our style of Hawaii food to everyone. Wonderful. Talk to me about your parents. So your parents and your dad, they sound like amazing people. 
your dad had a great idea, worked really hard, and his business grew. It's really the quintessential American dream story. So how are you different from your dad and how are you the same? Yeah, I, you know, my dad is, I feel like if you open up an encyclopedia and, and look up entrepreneur, you could just, you could see his picture there and his story there. And he would be the exact representation of what an entrepreneur is. Someone who just works hard, gets things done, you know, lots of vision, lots of ideas. And, you know, their, again, their background was very different than mine because of the success they had. I had a very, very lucky and fortunate life. Um, so I, I left Hawaii, went to college, got my business degree from USC, ended up working in corporate finance at GE, and eventually got my executive MBA from UCLA. So we had very different backgrounds. I had a very, very corporate background, very business education heavy background. Um, and my dad is much more that entrepreneur. So when I came back to work at LNL, you can just imagine the, <laughs> you know, I, I came in as CFO and my first question was, okay, give me the budget. Let me work on the budget. And his response was, we don't have a budget. I just know that we're making money. And it was very frustrating. And in the beginning, it was very difficult for me to understand his style um, of doing work and my style of doing work. And through time, I found that it was actually very great that we could look at things from different angles. We could have a much more full view of any question we were tackling. And because we had a good relationship, we can talk through how we saw things and come to a better decision. So the ways that we're very similar is that we have a tremendous passion for what we do. LNL is, you know, it, it existed before I did and I considered an older sibling. So it's part of our family and I'm just very grateful as I know he is to have it as part of our family legacy. That's really special. Turning the mic back to you, Murari, um, as Alicia just mentioned, she found her inspiration close to home through her father. So who were the individuals that you believed helped to mold you into who you are today? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and I would say that um, there's a two-part, right? So the first one, I would say is Miss Bolden, a high school teacher. I call her an angel in disguise. She saw a potential in me, and she introduced me to a world that I didn't know even existed, which in my case, it was corporate America. Having grown up with really no role models of people in corporate America or even business owners are doing things like that without her opening my eyes to a different world and just investing in me, I would have probably never been here. And the other one I would say it's, it's my parents. You know, when my parents moved to New Jersey from Puerto Rico, they sacrificed and faced so many challenges. But one thing that they did is they planted the seed of possibility. They watered it with faith, resilience, and persistence. And for me, giving up was just not an option, but creating what I wanted to see became my mission. And I have to thank them for that because they worked really hard to create a new world and new opportunities for their children. And because of them, that's how I feel I've been able to get to where I am today, and it's still my mission today <laughs> to create a place where multicultural women in high-level positions, it's the norm. And it's not just, oh, this is the first woman. Yeah, that may be today, but <laughs> now today I call myself, I am a champion of talent and a role model, creating a world where multicultural women in positions of power is the norm. 
Well, and I feel very honored to be on the line right now with two of those very powerful women. So Alicia, shifting back to you, you left Hawaii to go to school in California. Uh, You worked with GE for a time and then lived in Arizona. So I'm wondering why you would ever want to leave Hawaii. It's paradise there. But did you have a plan to come back or were you thinking that this was it and you you were going to leave Hawaii? So what was your plan there? So only crazy people leave Hawaii, (laughs) which is why I ended up back here when I realized I was a crazy person. You know, when I left for college, the plan was I would definitely come back. Working in a family business, the thought or advice my father had received was to have me work somewhere else first, so he wouldn't be my only boss for my entire life. So I intended to stay on the mainland for a bit, get a job. And actually what happened, I got a job at GE, and I really loved it. The mainland is a very different place in Hawaii in the sense that it's much bigger, obviously. There are so many more things to do and see and experience there. I loved working at GE. I loved climbing the corporate ladder. I loved traveling the country and the world. And for many, many years, I forgot about coming home or I thought I would be staying on the mainland. I got to work in a lot of fun industries and and thought back, you know, gosh, the restaurant industry is difficult. It's maybe not as sexy as some of the industries I was working in. And for many years, thought that I might not come back and I might not rejoin LNL. So things were going really well for you at GE and you were moving up the corporate ladder. What made you want to leave? Why didn't you stay there? Yeah. So the thing about large corporations is oftentimes, you know, they have really great times and really tough times. And I was at GE when they were doing a lot of reorganizations and I I didn't like some of what I was seeing. And the other piece of it was, again, I, I enjoyed climbing the corporate ladder, but I would look up and I didn't see anyone like myself. There were very few women in executive leadership and on the board. Um, there certainly were not any Asian people. Um, and so the thought of, okay, I can keep trying to climb this, but would I ever even have the opportunity to make it to the top was very, you know, I wasn't sure. And I thought to myself, perhaps I should move home to a company where I can have more impact, have more change. So I rejoined LNL. And, you know, as I said before, actually, when I came home, I I was unsure how I would love the restaurant industry. Um, It was so different to what I'd been working in. And after a year of being home, what I found was, you know, our job at LNL Corporate is really helping other individuals and for us, many immigrants as well, open their own restaurant. And so to be part of a company that's helping someone else achieve their American dream, just as my family has really kind of, that's the passion that I found. And and so I'm so excited that again, I realized I was a crazy person and moved back to Hawaii and and came back to LNL. So I know that you had been CEO of LNL for about a year and then March, 2020 came around and the COVID-19 pandemic hit. So tell me a little bit about that. That must've been really unsettling for you. (laughs) So it'd been less than a year. The pandemic hit And, you know, the thought in my head was like, holy, you know, explicitive. I'm just like going to ruin the family's legacy. This is maybe the biggest crisis the restaurant industry has faced. It's certainly the biggest crisis I've ever faced as a leader. And those first couple of months thinking back, it was really, really scary. I mean, for our stores and for the industry, you know, sales were just going down every day. 
Nobody really knew what COVID was. Customers were getting sick. Employees were getting sick. Policies were changing kind of every day. And in different states or counties you were in, you'd have to keep up with that. And it was really, really scary. And, you know, for me, it was just a big unknown. Um, and, and what was really helpful was that my dad is still here and he hasn't been through a COVID crisis before, but he has led through a crisis. And to have his leadership, to have the leadership of our team here, and especially to have the entrepreneurs, you know, within our organization, with our franchisees, who were able to act very quickly to react to their own communities, to their own requirements, their own policies. It ended up being okay, but certainly the first couple months were very scary. Turning back to you, Marari, um, listening to Alicia's journey and how she found her passion with L&L, is a story like hers what drives your passion to empower women in discovering their own success? Absolutely. I mean, Alicia's story is similar to so many other multicultural women. I mean, the numbers don't lie, right? You still look at the recent McKenzie study. There is still such a massive opportunity for women in general on boards or for women in corporate leadership roles. And when you start talking about multicultural women, the numbers are even so much smaller. And it is hard to see other people like you. That's why it is so critical for what Alicia is doing. And even for what I'm doing, it's we are staying in the fight, <laughs> I want to say, right? So that we can bring hope to those other women. You know, for me, looking at the new generation coming in and seeing, I'm a mother, I'm an executive, I'm also a caretaker to my parents, but for them being able to see that they can do this too, that they can have their dreams and still care for their families or still have a family if they want to have a family, right? But let it be their choice and not something that's dictated by society. So for me, empowering women is a passion of mine, really showing them that they already have the talents, that they already have everything they possess to be successful. Now, the world may impose rules out there and saying you don't have A, B, or C. I challenge that and I say, you already have what you need. You just need the opportunity. And if somebody's not willing to give it to you, you just got to take it. Right. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that, that sounds that Alicia is doing every day. You're taking the opportunity that you have and maximizing it. And that's what I do too. I, I leverage the position that I'm in to empower women, to give those opportunities, but more than anything, to remind them that they have what it takes to succeed. Although recruitment has been a big focus for the restaurant industry, workforce retention has its own set of changing best practices. Join the National Restaurant Association and Heartland Payment Systems for a webinar on November 10th. Jason Hines, Vice President of Compliance and Risk for Heartland Payment Systems, will share an overview of the retention technology solution landscape. He'll examine how HCM compliance can help your operation manage and retain your workforce efficiently. Register for New Thinking for New Challenges, Technology, Workforce, and the Restaurant Operator by visiting the link in our show notes or visit restaurant.org events learning. 
Alicia. So with this pandemic, you certainly rose to the occasion and showed off your leadership skills. So what were your prime areas of focus during this time? Sure. So here in the corporate office, we had just one focus, and that was to help our franchisees make it through COVID. And, you know, every day was something new. As I said before, one of the main things that we did was helping stay on top of what the different policy changes were. Many of our franchisees, as I said, are are immigrants. English may not be their first language. And beyond that, um, I think a lot of restaurant owners, they are excellent at running the restaurants, but maybe not reading policies or any of that kind of crazy legal language. So we would be there for them. We would, you know, do a lot of one-on-one conversations, a lot of individual help with each franchisee to make sure they had all the information they needed um, and answered any questions that they had. The other big project that we did was really helping our franchisees get the PPP and the restaurant relief funds that came through. So grateful that those were made available and so grateful for the NRAs across the country who helped our restaurants get that. Because honestly, if that didn't exist, the chances of survival for our stores would be a lot less. But we really helped a lot of our franchisees, again, kind of work with the bank, understand the documents they were signing, apply as soon as they could so they could get the funds. And so there was just communication with our franchisees was on, you know, turbo, and we were working with them every day. But our only goal, our only focus was making sure we did whatever we could to keep our franchisees afloat and help them get through the crisis. So how did your business do? Did you end up having to close any locations? Yeah. So again, that that extreme fear I had in March ended up being not too bad. Um, We had to close one store. To be honest, it probably would have had to close if it were, even if COVID didn't exist. And we ended up opening nine stores. So the year ended up pretty well for us. I I was really excited. And, And one of the pieces that really, you know, what turned the corner for me was around July, we started getting inquiries from folks. I remember there was this couple in Sarasota, Florida. They were looking to make a career change that, you know, the wife was a retired nurse, the husband was an executive for a big company, um, but they wanted to do something of their own. They wanted to become entrepreneurs. So they reached out to us wanting to open an LNL. And, you know, at that point, that was the first inquiry we gotten during COVID, serious inquiry. And I just felt this big relief that, okay, the industry is going to be okay. There are people who still want to open restaurants. There are still people who want to open LNLs. Let's get back to work on that piece of it. Um, and they ended up opening their store earlier this year and just super excited again that things have, we're still recovering certainly, but things are better than they were last year. You've talked a lot about your franchisees and how dedicated you are to them. Uh, I know they're critical to your success. And as you say, they're creating their own American dream stories and building their own wealth. So can you share any specific examples um, with me? Do you have a chef or or anyone who worked their way up uh, to owning their own store or something similar? Yeah, we've actually had a lot of chefs who've worked their way up, but perhaps my favorite story um, is our franchisee in Evans Mill, New York. Um, It's a husband and wife team. They came from China and in China, they had a, a very great career. The husband was a surgeon Uh, The wife was his nurse. They came to America. They could no longer practice medicine. They could barely speak English. Because of that, they got a job at a Chinese restaurant. They worked so hard, saved, saved, worked hard. Um, They ended up reaching out to LNL when they had saved enough money. 
and opened an LNL. Flash forward two years later, they now have continued to work hard and their families worked hard and now they own the strip mall that their LNL is located in. So it's amazing to me, and, and this is just probably one of hundreds of stories we have within our franchise organization of someone, because of the restaurant industry, I believe you can start from the bottom, work your way up to the top, and I see that over and over. And it's so exciting to me that they've been able to do something, and as Marari said earlier, you know, work so hard to create opportunities for their children. That's why they're doing all of this. Um, and, and to see their children working in their business and their grandchildren, you know, not working yet, but coming to the store, it just warms my heart to know that we're helping folks really start a life in America and, and make their dreams come true. Marari, Alicia shares the power that franchisees play in creating these opportunities to people of all backgrounds. So can you share some details on the pathways to franchisee ownership program that PepsiCo established uh, with the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance, otherwise known as MFHA? Tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So, you know, the effects of the pandemic have shed important light on the deep-rooted health and economic disparities among people of color and within their communities, right? So compound that with the racial unrest, minority-owned businesses and restaurant owners were disproportionately <laughs> impacted. So at PepsiCo, we know that strengthening these communities is critical. So investing in their life's work is what makes them thrive. We are investing in initiatives across multiple communities today, including Black, Hispanic, and Asian American Pacific Islander communities to remove the barriers to success. Now, you mentioned programs range from providing grants, mentorships, management training through community organizations, as well as finding ways to help restaurant owners accelerate their business with marketing tools. Last year specifically, we were a founding sponsor of the Multicultural Food Service and Hospitality Alliance program, Pathways to Black Franchise Ownership. Now their vision is to create wealth within Black communities by educating and motivating leaders, brands, and financial institutions to aggressively support African-Americans for franchising growth to achieve more equitable outcomes for all. And specifically for PepsiCo, it's just one of the many things that PepsiCo continues to do and really take a look at, right? So what are the needs of the community? And then lean in to help support those communities so that they can thrive and be successful. Because we also believe that if we empower our communities, if we support and invest in our communities, it makes a better world for all of us. Alicia, I'm curious what's involved in becoming an LNL franchisee. So what's the entry point? You know, how, how do people get involved with this? Yeah, my gosh, if anyone's interested, please, first thing to do is visit our website, llhawaii.com. Um, we've got a lot of information on there on how to become a franchisee. One thing I really love about LNL is, you know, I, I would say that we're more of a, a value kind of franchise organization. The initial franchisee is about you know, the average that you would see, but our ongoing franchise fees are much lower than what you would see in the industry. And I love that because, again, a lot of our franchisees are immigrants or someone wanting to become an entrepreneur for the first time. So the lower barrier to entry is meant to really welcome those folks in and, and give them that opportunity. You know, a famous word in Hawaii of ohana, meaning family, 
you know, anyone that becomes a franchisee to us joins our family. And I love that. So please visit our website, llhawaii.com, to learn more information. And we're excited to welcome folks into our ohana. Great. Thank you. We can link that in our show notes as well. Uh, and I know that your business is committed to providing opportunities for everyone. So what does the term diversity, equity, and inclusion truly mean to you? You know, as I mentioned earlier, as a gay Asian woman, early in my career, I thought that those would be parts of my identity that would hold me back. And whether it was true or not, that was a perspective that I had and that I felt. What I've seen now is that things have changed. They're certainly not where they need to be. As Marari said, you look at the numbers, they're not what they need to be, but they're improving. I, I feel that they're improving. And what I've seen, at least here in the Hawaii community, is that organizations, nonprofit boards, for-profit boards, public boards, are intentionally seeking diverse voice. They understand the value of that. They understand the idea of having a leadership team that better reflects the community. So I love that now I'm not the first, you know, diverse person in the room. I'm the second or the third. And I love that. You know, it, it's great that we're, we have more seats at the table. Uh, we need to continue to fight for that. But I'm a true believer of how diversity, equity, inclusion is better for an organization, is better for a community. And I'm so grateful that there are people like Marari and large companies really championing that for us and fighting for that, um, and that we're seeing a change in big industries now. Marari, same or similar question for you. I know you're someone that has dedicated your career to empowering others. So what does diversity, equity, and inclusion mean to you? You know, I go back to follow the numbers, follow the data. And, you know, research tells us that a more diverse an inclusive workforce, it's going to bring more innovation, more productivity. It's a win-win situation for us. So from a business perspective, I would say it's common sense, right? If you want to win, you got to be a more diverse, equitable, and inclusive workplace. Now, that takes work, and it can't just be one or the other. You got to have the diversity. You have to, people need to see themselves. And that also brings the inclusion. But if you don't have both, then it's going to be an issue. And then for me, what I would say is the equity. Whether we like it or not, it is not the same. <laughs> it is not the same for all of us. There are stereotypes, there are just societal processes, things, rules, you know, that have been put in place. And we really, for me, in organizations like PepsiCo, it's really taking a look at, are we really being equitable? Are we really providing those opportunities? You know, people want to say, hey, we want to be equitable. You can't offer everybody the same thing because not everybody has the opportunity to achieve that same thing. So there's got to be different programs and, and different solutions depending on whatever individual you're speaking to. So for me, it really means all three things. You got to have this diversity. You got to have different programs addressing the different needs of different people. And inclusivity just has to be the foundation. 
Ladies, this has been such an honor to speak with you and in kind of wrapping things up. Alicia, what are your plans for the future? What's next for you? Yeah, so I think I'm starting to see the light at the end of the COVID tunnel, although I, I thought I saw it in early August, but hopefully it's, it's for real now. Our franchisees, our stores are on much more sturdy footing than they were before. Um, and I think what we want to continue to do is focus on helping them continue to thrive and at the same time looking for ways and opportunities to grow. So really excited about our future, really excited about 2020 and beyond. Um, and again, very grateful to be here today to discuss this very important topic. We wish you all the best. And Marari, do you have any inspiring words for industry leaders to empower a diverse and inclusive workplace? Yes. What I would say is your identity matters. Your identity opens and closes doors. As industry leaders, there are doors that you currently have access to that other identities do not. Leverage the power of your identity to open the doors to those that do not have access to it today. That's very powerful. Thank you. Ladies, it has been such an honor to speak with you today. I also absolutely love the accolades and praise that you have given to each other. I think that really just shows the power of growth and praising each other and, and really growing from there. So thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Mahalo. Although recruitment has been a big focus for the restaurant industry, workforce retention has its own set of changing best practices. Join the National Restaurant Association and Heartland Payment Systems for a webinar on November 10th. Jason Hines, Vice President of Compliance and Risk for Heartland Payment Systems, will share an overview of the retention technology solution landscape. He'll examine how HCM compliance can help your operation manage and retain your workforce efficiently. Register for New Thinking for New Challenges, Technology, Workforce, and the Restaurant Operator by visiting the link in our show notes or visit restaurant.org slash events slash learning. Thanks so much for listening to Order Up, the podcast from the National Restaurant Association. Follow us on your favorite podcast player and find out more at restaurant.org slash podcasts. Episode produced by Dante32.